are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome to the Western Conference Preview on the Locked On Podcast Network. It's the local experts on the biggest stories. The local host of the Locked On Podcast Network with our daily podcast on every NBA, NFL, and now Major League Baseball team will give you the breakdown of their teams with the other hosts. We will start with the Blazers and the Thunder and then the Spurs and the Nuggets on that side of the bracket, then the Clippers and Warriors, and we'll wrap it up. I'll join, be joined by Ben DeBose of Locked On Rockets for the Jazz and the Rockets. So you've got the local expert on their team with the other local expert chatting about their teams and breaking down the upcoming series and how they play out. You can't get it anywhere else. It's unique to the Locked On Podcast Network. We have an Eastern Conference one as well. Plus, Ben Golliver and I sat down for a big-picture preview. Locked On NBA is loaded with content. You can get it on your Himalaya app as well as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Tell your smart device to play podcast Locked On NBA. All right, we're going to start on the 273. Six side of the bracket, so we'll start with the Spurs and the Nuggets with Adam Matas and Jeff Garcia. Hey everyone, this is Adam Matas with DenverStiffs.com and the host of the Locked On Nuggets podcast, and I'm joined today by uh, Jeff Garcia. Yeah, but this is Jeff Garcia, host of Locked On Spurs and lead Spurs writer over at News Force San Antonio. Well, Jeff, it came down to the wire, but we now know that the Nuggets and Spurs will be on a collision course for the playoffs. As a Nuggets fan, this kind of brings me back to the Carmelo era when the Spurs kind of had Denver's number throughout that run. Maybe this time will be a little bit different. What do you kind of see as the key to this series? Um, and what was your thought when you saw that the Spurs would be facing up against Denver? Uh, my first thought was, A, I'm glad we didn't slip to uh, eight for GSW. B, <laughs> right. um, I'm fortunate it was not Houston because uh, some guy by the name of James Harden and his reputation with refs and, you know, I did dealing with that kind of headache. <laughs> and when I saw it was Denver, I said, OK, I think that is a better matchup. Uh, Denver and the Spurs split to two, each winning in their own gym. Um, I thought that was a better matchup for San Antonio. Now, as far as the key matchup. I'm obviously looking at Joker versus LaMarcus Aldridge. I yeah. think that is going to really going to set the tone for this series. And I'm actually looking at a guy like Jakob Pertl to try to come in and give uh, Joker some fits because the last thing this Spurs team needs is to see LMA get into foul trouble trying to defend Joker because, let's face it, the Spurs go as LaMarcus go. He's been the rock for San Antonio. So, yeah, I'm looking at that matchup, Adam. I think both guys are going to be pretty good in this series and kind of have, for the reasons you mentioned, I think both guys can score on the other and both guys can kind of do what they want. The thing I first thought of when this matchup, when, when I thought it was going to be this matchup was a game way the, all the way back. I think it was December when these two, two teams met back to back, uh, one in San Antonio and then two nights later in Denver. And San Antonio had a really interesting game plan in that one. They were sending hard doubles and sometimes triple teams to Jokic as soon yeah. as he caught the ball, just trying to get the ball out of his hands and dare somebody else to um, to beat them. And that was a game that San Antonio won. It was in San Antonio. And uh, mm -hmm. I just expect that same game plan. I think 
when Jokic is able to get the ball moving and get everybody involved, the Nuggets get comfortable. Um, when yep. you kind of take the ball out of his hands and force somebody else to make plays, sometimes it works great and Denver, you know, has guys knocking down shots, but it really puts the ball in the hands of guys that are a lot more inconsistent than, uh, Nicola. So that's kind of what jumps out to me is what will be the game plan from San Antonio. Another big matchup here that maybe you don't think of a whole lot, Michael Malone and Greg Popovich. Greg Popovich, the most seasoned coach in the NBA, especially playoff yep. experience. Michael Malone's coming into his first playoff experience. What do you make of that matchup? I think that's obviously lopsided, uh, big edge, Popovich. Popovich has been there, done that. I don't think you and I or the listeners need to really break down exactly what he's done for San Antonio, especially in the postseason. Um, you look at uh, Popovich who is probably going to throw different looks that uh, Mike Malone has not seen in the four matchups during the regular season. Uh, you look at that last meeting in Denver where Denver just stomped all over San Antonio, but uh, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, but I think that was a game where Pop got tossed. 63 um, seconds yes. into the game. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, it was just like a Thanos snap. He yeah. just snapped himself out of that game. So I, I think, with the Spurs losing Popovich's leadership in that game could have contributed to the big loss up in the Mile High City. But nevertheless, I think huge edge Popovich. Uh, Mike Malone is going to give it all he's got. Look, uh, Mike Malone has tremendous respect for Popovich. We saw that when Pop crashed his uh, post-game interview. Uh, he, he literally, Malone looked like he was lost for words. He didn't know what to say. He's like, that, 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 that was just pop. <laughs> he looked stunned. Nevertheless, yeah, uh, big edge Popovich and, uh, look, uh, look for pop to throw different things that maybe, maybe, just maybe the Nuggets, uh, staff are not expecting to see. I think that's the way you beat Denver is you change up the game plan game by game, but also maybe even quarter by quarter and just kind of Denver's a cerebral team. They're a finesse team. So the more you kind of constantly keep them on their heels, I think the better. Uh, another thing that's interesting with this matchup, Denver, the best home record in the NBA, San Antonio has not lost to the Nuggets in 13 mm -hmm. straight matchups in San Antonio. Yep. So this is two teams that I think are going to expect to win at home. But somebody's probably going to drop a home game. I think the first team to do that probably um, is, is the team that's going to lose the series. Let's get out of here by making final predictions for this one. I think it's going to be a close series. Um, I think it's one of those ones that I would not be surprised either way that it went. Um, but what's your final opinion on how this one will go? I think uh, Spurs will get one on the road. Now, the road has been their Achilles heels during the regular season, but pretty much the postseason, it's a reset. Uh, I think the Spurs will shake out of their uh, aches and pains away from San Antonio. Uh, game one is important. I think that will set the tone Agreed. for both teams. Uh, but I think Spurs will get this in six games. It's a good, it's a good take. I, I think this is going to be a dogfight, and I'm with you. I think the Spurs grab one of those first two games. I think yeah. Denver might be able to grab one of the second two games and and, and kind of even things out, and then this becomes a three-game series. I'm going to go with Denver in seven, but I'm not very confident in that take. I really do think this is a series that probably comes down to either game six or game seven, um, and, and it really could go either way. I think Denver in a vacuum is probably a better team by a comfortable margin. Uh, but the experience factor, the coaching factor, all of those things. And then also Denver just hasn't been great. 22nd best offense since the All-Star break. So they're kind of entering the playoffs, certainly not at their best um, that they've been this season. But I still think they have the talent to, to win this series. 
Gotta agree with you. I think it's gonna be a tough series, and it's gonna be a tough series. But here's the thing, too: I don't expect it to be a war. Um, you know, I think these are both very young teams. Um, you know, I think uh, the Spurs, let's face it, uh, they're relying on a second-year guard, a guard that's spent half his, uh, well, majority of his rookie season up in the G League. And I'm talking about Derek White. You got guys like Bryn Forbes, Davis Bertans, the only truly battle-tested players they have on that roster outside of Popovich is uh, LMA, DeMar DeRozan, and uh, Patty Mills, and Marco Bellinelli. And that, as far as just this quick hitter that I can think of at the top of my head, so the Spurs are going to have to rely on a lot of young guys to really pull through. Can they do that is a big question that I'm looking at heading into this series. Should be a fun one. I think it'll be one of the premier matchups of that first round, so I'm looking forward to it. You can, of course, follow him and listen to all of the Spurs-related podcasts at Locked On Spurs. And if you want to get the Nuggets perspective, you can follow me at Locked On Nuggets. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll see how it shakes out. That matchup is now the 2-7 matchup. We'll give you the Blazers and the Thunder in just a second. Want to remind you that Ben Golliver and I sat down. There's also an Eastern Conference preview, and if you haven't caught it yet, there's now... Locked on MLB as well. Follow during the playoffs. Follow the Locked on NBA Net Twitter account or Instagram account to get all the latest. Locked on NBA Net on Twitter and on Instagram. Now let's look at the Blazers and the Thunder with the Locked on Blazers and Locked on Thunder host, the local experts giving you the breakdown of the biggest stories. What up, world, and welcome back to a very special edition of Lockdown Blazers meets Lockdown Thunder. I am your pass-first point guard and Blazer beat writer, Mike Richmond, and joining me, very special guest, Eric G. of Lockdown Thunder, the Thunder Maven himself. What's up, Eric? How are you? Well, if you're the pass-first point guard, then I'm the guy that uh, sits in the corner and takes errant threes when he's guarded by um, one or more people on the court. Everyone needs guy. an Andre I, I, Roberson uh, floor floor spacer, you know. We everyone needs that. Yes, that's exact. That is the. I was about to say that. That is about the best way to put it. I am Andre Roberson, all defense, one dimensional, and occasionally I can hit the well timed three. Um, if you consider well timed at no point in the game when you actually really need it, and it makes a difference. Perfect. Perfect. Well, uh, the reason that we are here today is because sometime late last night, uh, the Blazers won a game that I don't think they wanted to win so they could grab the three seed and play the Thunder. Um, what, uh, what are your just big takeaway thoughts on, uh, on this matchup as, as that's going to kick off Sunday afternoon in Portland, a, a noon Pacific start on Sunday? Well, first, you know, you brought something up that I wanted to ask you, first of all, and that's were and, and that is, were the Blazers purposely trying to tank that game last night so they could avoid playing Oklahoma City in the first round and hand that chore to the Houston Rockets, which have fared much better against Oklahoma City than Portland is this year? And just to answer your second question, my big takeaways from this is if you were ever looking for a series where Steven Adams had the chance to be a dominant player, this is it. As much as Ennis Canner um, is averaging a double-double this year, Steven Adams gets about, I think it's about 45 touches per game I was looking at. It's 47 touches per game. That should go up exponentially here in this series. The Thunder ought to be able to take advantage of Yusef Nurkic being out and work Steven Adams not only into the game plan at the beginning 
of any particular game, but towards the end in the fourth quarter, he's going to be a nice safety blanket for Russell Westbrook to have. Absolutely. Uh, uh, before I uh, weigh in on the mic, sort of thoughts on that. And I, I want to say, yeah, I, I think the Blazers were very specifically trying to avoid the Thunder at all costs. Uh, they will never admit it. Terry Stotts was adamant that it was all about rest. It was all about rest. Uh, Damian Lillard all but said after the game that he wanted to play the Thunder because he wanted the challenge of going against Russell Westbrook as a competitor and all that. But uh, I'd like to give the some truth serum to the Blazers coaching staff in front office because I'm almost certain that the plan was to just lose that game, let the rookies run out for an insane 48-minute stretch, and end up in Utah on on Sunday or Saturday or end up hosting Utah on Sunday or Saturday. But uh, I, I think you touched on sort of the, for me, the big thing for the Blazers is the, this season was always going to be about the playoffs for them. You know, they were a 49 win three seed last year and they got swept out of the playoffs. The big number in Portland is 10. They've lost 10 straight playoff games. And without, with Yusuf Nurkic, this was an incredibly compelling matchup because, uh, like you said, the, the Steven Adams matchup with him is really fun. Obviously, the point guard matchup is fun. And like, what do the Blazers do with Paul George is intriguing. But, uh, without Nurk in the middle, the Blazers are, are, uh, they just don't have that sort of the, the girth and, and defensive tenacity inside. And I, I do think that could be, that could be a big issue. Uh, I guess my, my question for you, or I think the big story for you is, is Paul George healthy? Like, what, what's up with Paul George? That's a really good question because after the Houston game, well, obviously, if, if you didn't watch the Bucks game last night, and I don't know how many people listening to this watched Oklahoma City play a G League Milwaukee team. Well, it was Paul, pretty important in Portland. We were watching because it was before tip-off it would, because that locked the uh, the Blazers in. It was definitely on like every TV at the Moda Center that game. Uh, it's certainly, I mean, if you got the same feeling I did from that game last night, it felt like just a bunch of dudes showed up at the Y and went, Hey, do you want to play? Um, Milwaukee going with his own defense last night, but Paul George not playing last night after the game against Houston on Tuesday, Paul George was getting an extra dose of kinesio tape from one of the thunder trainers. They were taping up his shoulder um, patting it down. Paul George ices his shoulder after every single game. I've seen him have ice packs on both shoulders after games uh, this season. And with Paul George having that short shoulder, shoulder obviously you saw that it, it, it hurt him against Houston because he was like 9 of 25 in that game. Still had a grip of points, but what Paul George, even with that hurt shoulder, can do so significantly and this is going to be a problem for the Blazers, in my opinion, is Paul George knows how to get through the free throw line. And yeah. against Houston the other night, that's where he got a bulk of his points, was being able to get to the free throw line. And he's the one guy in Oklahoma City's lineup that you can rely on from the charity stripe. So if he's not hitting, Russell Westbrook has to make sure he can sit Paul George up in the paint so he can get to the rim, get fouled, and then get his points that way. Yeah, and the last game in Portland between these two teams, uh, both him and Damian Lush took 20 free throws in a game that took uh, more than three hours to finish. A, a game I'll always remember because it ran forever. But uh, so be, I think Paul George is the obvious advantage for the for for OKC. Uh, he's an All NBA type player. The Blazers just simply don't have those players on the wings. Um, Debating which point guard is better, I think, is is meaningless. It's it's a wash. They're both very good at different things. Where else do you see the the Thunder having an advantage in this series? 
Well, that's now see that is something that I tried to pick apart this morning as I, as I was looking at both teams' lineups and going through the box scores and trying to remember every single game. I don't know that besides the paint and besides Paul George, the Thunder necessarily have an advantage other than just that mental advantage of being able to beat a team four times in one right. season. And right, while, right, Billy, right. While, while Billy Donovan will make light of that, and, and Billy Donovan's very cagey in the fact that he'll say, oh, you know, sweeping somebody in the regular season doesn't mean anything because circumstances and are you coming off a back-to-back and who's resting and who's hurt – I believe for the Thunder, it was a huge deal to sweep the Blazers this year because throughout the years, they have had problems with them. Where I, where the Blazers scare the hell out of me is this CJ McCollum, Terrence Ferguson matchup because lately Terrence Ferguson's defense has started to fall off and the Thunder don't do a very good job of defending the three and Portland certainly can shoot the three. Uh, Portland's also a very good free throw shooting team. And while the Thunder's foul situation has gotten better over the last few games, they have had a tendency throughout this season to foul teams at very inopportune times, either out on the three or late in the shot clock. So those two things kind of scare me. Plus, um, it, when you look at the Thunder bench outside of, um, outside of Dennis Schroeder, it's a thin bench. Right. And and I think that Portland can take advantage of Oklahoma City when they've got that second unit on the court, and it's going to mean a lot of minutes for guys like Russell Westbrook, Paul George, and Jeremy Grant. And if this gets into a long series, those guys could be worn out by the time you get to game six or seven. Absolutely. I, I think you touched on the big ones for me. Uh, I, where where What I think we will see, just because – of the Blazers' sort of lack of creators and guys who can really dribble on the wing is uh, is that we'll see more of Paul George on C.J. McCollum. I think that's the move. I think I th- and maybe not you know f- 45 minutes when they're both on the court or whatever, but I think we will see more of of, of PG just straight up taking C.J. McCollum, try to take him out of the game and daring guys like Mo Harkless and Alfred Camino to beat them. And I do think the Blazers have a little bit of advantage on the bench. I think Rodney Hood and, and Seth Curry have proved to be pretty valuable uh, pieces. Uh, the rest of their bench is kind of up and down, but those two guys having those wing options off the bench is probably better than what uh, Markeith Morris has, has given the Thunder since his arrival there. Uh, but I also think in the playoffs, benches matter a lot less. I, I think... I think these games are often decided by star power. And you mentioned that m- maybe wearing down Russell Westbrook. I think that's uh, that's an approach the Blazers have taken over the past five years with Terry Stotts is kind of let Westbrook go off. They beat Oklahoma City a few years ago when Westbrook had 59 or 57, I think. It's just like anyone – no one else other than than Russ is gonna is gonna beat us. We're gonna let Russ just go go nuts, which he's capable of going about as nuclear as anyone in the league. But make sure nobody else beats us. So to me, this is this is a series that might be decided by star power because it seems like the the star wattage is a little brighter in Oklahoma City and uh, and it just just compared to what it is with the Blazers. You know, one thing I, that, that's fascinating to me about this game is that Oklahoma City loves to switch on defense. Right, right, right. They, they consider that to be – Billy Donovan considers that to be one of the Thunder's biggest edge, but at times you will see Steven Adams get put out on a guard, and it does worry me that during the switch he could end up on either McCollum or Lillard, which is a serious matchup, and because of Adams' footwork, he can't guard the three r- real well. And he's not fleet of foot by any stretch of the imagination to keep up with those guys. But 
talking about George being out on McCollum, and yes, you may see that, but one thing I do like is if Jeremy Grant gets switched out on those sure, guys because sure. he did about as good a job on James Harden as you can do. Yeah, he's given the Blazers tons of problems too. They they don't have an answer for his length. And that and that's where really all his strength comes on. By the way, um, if you are ever playing James Harden one on one, I learned this the other night talking to Jeremy Grant. The way to guard James Harden, if you meet him in a park somewhere and you guys are playing a game of one-on-one, just let him drive and make him shoot over you. So I guess that means let him drive and be six, nine. And then, <laughs> and then you've got a chance to guard the most unguardable player in the NBA. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think the thunder's length is the thing that scares the blazers the most. I think that's why they didn't want to play him because I think the size on the wings is, is what they're really, uh, and just, and just in general with, with Adams too, the, the, that length is is what the Blazers were trying to avoid, and now they're going to have to deal with it straight up. So uh, I think this is going to be a fun series. Uh, I think we'll probably save predictions for a little bit later on, but uh, I I think this is going to be a really intriguing series. I think the just the 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 way the the timbre of the first four games they've been heated. I expect some heated games here in the next you know, whatever, four to seven that we see from this series. Advantage Blazers, if that happens, because Oklahoma City has has made no secret this year, especially Paul George, um, how much they do not feel like they are being refed fairly as compared to the other league or other teams in the league, although the numbers do not bear that out. Uh, If you want to Google that and take a closer look at it. Um, But we've seen... All too often this year in Oklahoma City that when Russell Westbrook and Paul George in particular feel that they aren't getting the calls, refs have no problems teeing them up. And if this gets heated, the emotions, especially off Russell Westbrook and Paul George, could certainly play to the advantage uh, of the Portland Trailblazers in this series. And that's something that Billy Donovan and his staff are going to be have to be very cognizant of, uh, meaning Billy may have to get thrown out of a game. Well, maybe he'll get thrown out at lunchtime here in Portland. We got a 12:30 tip-off game one on Sunday. Uh, Eric and I will try to link up during this series and do another one of these. Appreciate you guys listening. We'll talk to you soon. That side of the bracket is wrapped up. We've got the other side coming up for you here in just a second. Reminder to you: Locked On NBA Net will have all of the local hosts on one Twitter feed for you during the playoffs, an incredible place to get all your news and information about the NBA. Clippers and the Warriors, the fun guys, the hosts of the Locked On Clippers are joined by Charles Hamilton, Locked On Warriors. Let's head it over to William and Charles of Locked On Clippers. So let's just get into it. How confident are you (laughs) against the Clippers in a seven-game series? (sighs) Pretty confident. I can't lie. Uh, you know, we, we just talked about it. I think Will called it a retooling. Like, I love what the Clippers have done this year. And they're going to be, you know, they're they're set up for great things in the future. Uh, I would say they might be a year ahead, though. So as Ooh. great as it is, I just, you know, uh, Lou Williams is great. Montrez Harrell causes problems. All, all the accolades and stuff. But it's still the Warriors. So as far as seven games goes, I'm still, still pretty confident. Like, I think this is the matchup that they wanted. I really like your take that we're maybe a year ahead mm-hmm. 
because I think, I mean, we obviously exploded everyone's expectations. Absolutely. I mean, Every, they, everyone who cared to pay attention, which I, I still think is a pretty small amount of people. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, it makes sense. You guys were kind of hoping for this matchup. Is there, I mean, we were, we're kind of optimistic. And by optimistic, I think we can take maybe one game from you guys if Curry has to sit out because of his ankles. I could see it even with Curry in. Like you guys have the, or the Clippers have the ability to get hot. I mean, that's, that's the biggest thing is, you know, if you tell me Lou Williams goes for 30 and Trez has, you know, 25 and 10 and Shamit's knocking down shots, like I could definitely see it. Yeah. It's, I mean, the Oracle is such a tough pace, place to play mm-hmm. and the Clippers don't exactly have a raucous home arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say. So I think you guys it will be playoffs though. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully it'll be playoffs. Uh, <laughs> Is there? Do you think there's any chance you guys drop a game against the Clippers? I could see if I was betting on it, I'd, I'd probably not, but I could definitely see it happening. Like if it if it happens, I, I would not be surprised. You don't think uh, it could like a cordial gentleman sweep? Yeah, the gentleman sweep, I could definitely see. I mean, the Warriors have a history of not being completely locked in, of I guess knowing how good they are and. You know, just expecting to flip a switch, and sometimes it it doesn't work. So I could, I could definitely see it. And uh, also, like I said, you guys can get hot. Like they have enough playmakers, enough shooters, and also they get to the line so much that that could be a huge oh, yeah. problem, especially depending on how much Demarcus Cousins plays and and things like that. So I could I could definitely see it. Yeah. Do you see Bogut being a contributor pretty heavily in the playoffs or no? Because that was a good signing by you guys, but I think he kind of matches up. I think Trez versus Bogut kind of favors us just based on energy from Trez. Yeah. No, I could, uh, I, the, the signing's been good. He's been better than I thought he'd be, honestly. I, I didn't, I thought he'd just be like the 15th man, really. And the fact he's contributing is awesome. Uh, the, the interesting thing is in that last regular season game, uh, the two, two teams played, Montrez and Zubac gave Cousins problems. Yeah, they, so, they bodied it. Yeah, so I could see maybe Bogut gets some more run, or maybe Kavon Looney's another option, even though he doesn't have the height to really deal with Zubac, or uh, Jordan Bell, who's just been in and out of the rotation all year. Like You never really know what you're going to get from him. But yeah. the, the center position is a worry, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I see that as our biggest, I mean, like the biggest, kind of other than, than the line, uh, our biggest kind of in for, for some sort of victory is like really just carving it out down low. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one thing that people don't really talk about with Trez is I, I do think that he's like a pretty smart player and a cerebral player. And I yeah. do think that he, he, he wants to figure guys out. Like he wants to figure them out. He wants to get in their head and he wants to have a good game. You know, whether it's, whether it's Bogut, whether it's Boogie, like, you know, it, it, it means that he, you know, he always plays with a chip on his shoulder. So I think that that's something that, uh, you know, that could be advantageous, but you know, uh, there's so many, you, you guys have so many weapons. It's just, yeah. I, I we're, just, we're bringing a knife to a gunfight, sure, yeah. but it, it's uh, tough for sure. It's a long knife. <laughs> I have to, I have to give you guys credit though, or the Clippers, whatever. Uh, I love the Zubach move, man. I can't believe the Lakers let him go for Mike Muscala. Like that, man, there's so. They not only let him go, they called Jerry West about that trade. We oh didn't even inquire God. about that. Dude, shout out Jerry West. Part of the uh, he was part of the rebuild or the you know build in in uh, Golden State and just what he's done with the Clippers. I was just telling you guys before we 
came on is probably my favorite storyline of the entire year. To see yeah. a team built like in real time, it's in just been incredible. Yeah, 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 definitely. The the thing that bothers me is that his son works for the Lakers and his <laughs> contract with us is up after this year. Ooh. And so I'm a little worried that he might go calling back to the Lakers if his son gets maybe a promotion. Who knows? But I'm going to worry about that when I worry. It's possible. I trust Ballmer to open the checkbook, though. I think Ballmer's smart smart enough oh, to yeah. do yeah. whatever it takes to keep him. He has $40 billion to give. Oh, that's it? I yeah, thought it was. I thought it was more. Um, my, never mind. <laughs> do you want to see Curry sat at all? Like maybe those first two home games for you guys, just not, for longevity purposes, maybe. Not really. I because I they haven't been really forthcoming with much about the injury, but I think uh, I think it's really minor. Like I think he could have come yeah, back definitely. in the game the other night. So if and they do feel with he, Steph, I feel like it's a little blown out of proportion just because of history. Steph and the ankles, forget it. We're we're gonna lose our mind. So. I, I think I think he he'll be fine, but if it's not, then then yeah, definitely you, you sit him. But if he's good to go, you got to play him for sure. Well, is there anything you guys see with the Warriors that could be an opportunity or like a weak spot that you think they might be able to uh, to take advantage of, or is it like just I said, like the, I think that the post play, I think that if we can if we can control the tempo, um, our transition defense has been getting better and better throughout the year it's like been one of the few points where our defense is actually really really solid uh so i think that that could like that could stop a little bit of the momentum especially on like transition threes doc mentioned it a little bit today in the in the post conference and then like i said just uh if we can really grind it out in the post we can slow this game down and like and turn it into a very physical like a very, cl- I'm going to say very Clippers. I'm using air quotes, <laughs> kind of Clippers match. I mean, I, I do think that that is advantageous. And then obviously, you know, like you said earlier, just getting to the line. Yeah. Um, but, I, I, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just... <laughs> yeah, for sure. I got to ask one other thing as far as were you polling for the Clips to make the playoffs this year? Or were you guys kind of sitting there like, you know, we could, the draft pick might be nice. Like, where where, where did you guys stand with that? So we didn't, with how much player turnover we had, honestly, after the Tobias trade, I think Will and I both thought we were kind of in a soft take. Yeah. Which is where, like, if we make the playoffs, great. If we don't, that's awesome, too. Yeah. But the season's already been such a success. And we have, I mean, Shamit, Shea, and Zubots still all on their rookie deals. It's ridiculous. I'm fine with it. Yeah. Yeah. I was fine losing the pick. And, I mean, personally, Full disclosure, I don't watch a ton of college basketball. Mm-hmm. And so all, everything I've read is that this draft is pretty weak other than the top four or five picks. Mm-hmm. And we were going to get those anyway. Yeah. Well, and I feel like the narrative is now shifted from no one pays attention to the Clippers to the Clippers are so stupid for giving up their pick to Boston. <laughs> but I feel like the thing is, is like right now, um, we have a like kind of a wealth of young guys that we don't even have the time to develop. So I don't know what help adding like adding a late pick would really be. Um, so I I would say that I was surprised a little bit surprised that we made the playoffs. I had us pegged at like 43 to maybe 45 wins, uh, and just like maybe narrowly missing the the playoffs at the nine spot. So I mean I've been super surprised. I, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I just got to say I love that term soft tank. I'm definitely <laughs> stealing that. That is great. 
Yeah, I was like, it's advantageous. Uh, we yeah. got a soft tank. We got a retool. We're yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, uh, I mean, appreciate you hopping on the call. I think absolutely, uh, guys. Yeah, if we make it up to the, I mean, I'm sure we'll be texting throughout the game or something like that. Oh, for sure. If you guys steamroll us, I hope you win the championship so we lose to oh, the yeah. eventual champs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, likewise, guys. Likewise. If you beat us, I hope you guys get the ring. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. If we beat you, we don't win the championship. God help us. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, have a good rest of your night. Thanks for, thanks for talking about it, Charles. Appreciate it, fellas. Have a good one. And now the 4-5 matchup in the Western Conference. I'm joined by Ben DeBose of Locked on Rockets as we break down the final series of the Western Conference playoffs for you. Hi, I'm David Locke, host of Locked on Jazz. And I'm Ben DuBose, host of Locked on Rockets. Jazz and the Rockets will play the 4-5 series. We're previewing it here on Locked on NBA. And Ben, I think this one's interesting. One, because these are two of the hottest teams in the NBA Two, because I actually think it's a bad matchup for both teams. The Jazz have had a hard time scoring more than anything else against the Rockets. And if I dig into the numbers, it actually looks like the Rockets, some of their less good games have been against the Jazz. I could see that. The primary issue for the Rockets this year now, their defense has gotten better in the final 24 games. But in terms of why they started 11-14, and 14, why the 65-win team really until the All-Star break was tracking to be a sub-50 the biggest difference is that they could not rebound the ball. And when you think the Jazz, you look up front, Rudy Gobert, Derek Favors, you think a very big physical team that rebounds the basketball, doesn't give a ton of second chances. So from the Rockets' perspective, I think they do a good job, going back to the playoffs last year in these games, of limiting Utah's opportunities on offense. The flip side is that where Houston is weakest, which is on the glass, that's a strength of the Utah Jazz. So to me, that's why it's kind of mixed in terms of whether it's a good matchup for Houston or not. Uh, people probably don't use this metric a lot, but to back up Ben's point, when the Rockets get 76% of their defensive rebounds, that's a pretty high number, but that's, they're 25 and 2. So if you don't punish the Rockets on the defensive glass, you're in trouble. It's interesting because I think a lot of teams' instinct is to run back, get in transition, get set in the half court, not let the Rockets get fast break points, and so they don't go hit the glass. But if the Rockets' defensive rebounding is over 80%, they're 16-0. and They're 25-2 and when they're over 76%. The story on both these teams, Ben, is this turnaround. From the Jazz standpoint, the turnaround is very schedule-based. The schedule got very soft. They took advantage of it. They did what they were supposed to. And in turn, since January 1st, they're one of the best teams in the league. Since February 1st, both these teams are the best, uh, two of the best teams in the league. The differentials are one and two in the league, I believe. What is the story on the Rockets' turnaround? Largely, I think it's twofold. I think it's first, James Harden saved the season because when you look at how they started, and actually one of the low points, they dropped to 11-13. and 13. There was a game in Utah, I'm sure you remember in December, that they got beat by 35. They looked completely uncompetitive, below 500, heading into the 25-game mark. And then shortly after that is when Harden started his 30-point streak, reached 32 games. And even though they ended up losing Chris Paul, Clint Capella during that stretch, they not only stayed afloat, they actually, that's when they started their climb. And so, to me, from Houston's standpoint, they needed something to save them, and that's what Harden's superhuman stretch did. And then since the All-Star break, that kind of kept them, it stabilized them. And then since the All-Star break, that's when they've gotten healthy again, Chris Paul, Clint Capella, that's when the defense has stabilized, going from 
really bottom five, bottom 10 most of the year to top five over the final 24, 25 games since the break. And then at that point, that's been the closest thing to last year's Rockets, the 65-win group that we've seen. This is really a matchup of maybe the two best teams in the NBA since February 1st. The Rockets are the number one offensive team since February 1st, the number five defensive team. The Jazz are the number three offensive team and the number two defensive team after last night behind Orlando. The Rockets are the number one team in differential since February 1st at 9.9, which is an astronomically high number. The Jazz are number two in the league at 9.0. There's nobody else over eight. The Rockets are 24 and eight. The Jazz are 21 and nine. And yet, I think most people see it as a mismatch because Houston has clicked in looking like the team they were last year and Houston whitewashed Jazz in the playoffs last year. Do you see it as a mismatch? Slightly, but I don't see it as commanding because of the rebounding thing we discussed earlier. I think, to me, that's the one bugaboo that Houston has consistently had that gives them trouble. And I said it after they lost to the Thunder, a game Tuesday night that would have given Houston the two seed. They had everything to play for, there are still, especially when the matchup is tough, these offensive lulls that Houston can go into. And while I don't think the Jazz are quite as athletic and long overall as the Thunder are, they do share enough of the same characteristics that I'm not going to say that it's just a commanding lead. Generally speaking, I think it's a good matchup for Houston only because having watched this a lot the last two years, I'm just not sure the Jazz have it in them to score enough points. But Given what Houston's weaknesses are, it kind of goes back to what you said earlier. It's not an ideal matchup for both teams. And I've seen enough from Utah on the glass and defensively that tells me that while I think Houston probably wins the game or or the series, I don't think it's a commanding edge by any means. It's a bad matchup for the Jazz because the Rockets switch everything, the Jeff Mm -hmm. Bazilic defense, and the Jazz are the team that run the most picks the most handoffs, and if you're running those picks and those handoffs and they're switching everything, it doesn't really do anything, doesn't give you the advantage. Is the Rocket defense, that switching defense that caused the problems last year, that Jeff Bazilla came back to fix, back on switching all the time, or are they playing different styles? They're primarily still switching. The biggest difference this year is that they're dropping Clint Capella more. Part of the reason, I don't know if he came in heavy or what, but to start the season, the first 20 games and they got in that horrible start. Capella, and when people think of the Rockets playoff run a year ago, they often think of Capella switching on to even like the Steph Curry's of the league and holding his own. He was getting routinely burned. So in an effort to help the rebounding issue and also to mitigate uh, Capella not being quite as quick laterally, they, they've basically been switching one through four this year and dropping Capella as the five to help with rebounding. Now, that's not 100%. They do, at times, still have Capella switch, but that's the small distinction. They do still largely do the same things as far as switching. They're just not quite as aggressive with Capella's role in it as they were a year ago. I think the bad the reason it's not a great matchup for the Rockets, at least statistically, is that the Jazz warp the Rockets' shot chart. Um and force them into more mid-range shots than about anybody does. Obviously, Gobert is able to drop... Um, they can hold, they deny three point shots better than any team in the NBA. Is there a script by which people cause the Rockets problems? Is it to let James get his and not involve the others? Is it to, to double James and force the ball out of his hands? What's your, what's your feeling on what 
uh, is the answer and the biggest, best way people have defended James Harden? Generally, I think it's to swarm and make other teams beat him. We were talking earlier about the record, which is a bit mixed, um, about Harden's usage and how well Houston plays when he gets a certain number of touches or shots. And when you look at the chart, you know, you, you would see kind of the in-between range is when Houston has some of its most struggles. I think it's always misleading that the highest game that Harden had usage-wise when the Rockets won, that was that sort of outlier stretch from December to January, like we were talking about, that Harden was just out of his mind. He's still really good, but he's not that guy. It's not fair to hold him or anyone to that expectation. So generally speaking, if you take out the outlier stretch, the Rockets, they're at their weakest when you stop what they do best, which is James Harden. You put up at least some resistance and you make other guys beat you. In the case of what Houston has now, what's interesting about this matchup, so many of these between the Jazz and the Rockets were early this season. In terms of more predictability besides James Harden, what has helped them a lot throughout the year, although they didn't on Tuesday in OKC, the midseason signings of Austin Rivers and Daniel House, but it's not just like these are shooters. They're also guys who can make plays off the bounce, do some things with the ball in their hand. And that's where, you know, people think Chris Paul in the mid-range. And, of course, that's the big storyline if it's not James Harden. But besides that, Rivers and House, those are two guys that were brought in to sort of help if teams are going to overplay James Harden. And we just haven't seen much of them in the Houston-Utah matchup since so many of them came early in the season. All right, I've got some geeky notes for you here. You ready for these, Ben? I think they're interesting. They back up a little what you said. Houston's yep. 12 worst offensive games of the year. Now, four of the 12 happened when Carmelo was still on the team. So to some extent, really, those shouldn't count. But just mm-hmm. keeping those in for a second, the second worst, fifth worst, and ninth worst were all against the Jazz. One of those with wow. Carmelo. You take out Carmelo, then the single worst outing of the year offensively for the Rockets was on December 6th. And the December 17th game becomes the fifth worst, so the first and the fifth. And where this becomes most interesting to me is when you look at the – so that's on that's on one side. That's the Rockets' offense. The other mm-hmm. part that's interesting to me is when you look at the Rockets' defensive uh, approach on things and you look at the Rockets' worst – defensive nights in regards to shot quality. Not necessarily shots going in, but the shots they allow, right, for the season. Mm-hmm. The Jazz are yeah. one, the Jazz are five, the Jazz are nine, and the Jazz are 13. So the Jazz mm. had four of the 13 games in which they got the best looks against the Rockets' defense. Now, they didn't make the shots. The Jazz missed a tremendous amount of shots against the Rockets. But to me, that's where... The Jazz actually tax the Rockets. They may not have the personnel to do it, but systematically they tax the Rockets. Those are the breakdowns of the four Western Conference series as only the local experts on the biggest stories can give you exclusive to here on the Locked On Podcast Network. Thanks so much for tuning into the Locked On Podcast Network. Now follow Locked On NBA Net on Instagram for all the latest takes, plus the feed of feeds on Twitter with all of our hosts on one spot. Locked On NBA Net. This has been a production of the Locked On Podcast Network.